Uh, But let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, this is your word that we've heard read and now preached, and we pray that in your kindness you would help us to hear you speak. Father, please remove distraction uh, or apathy. Please help us to hear your word as it is, the word of the living God given to us. Father, please uh, be honoured through the preaching and hearing of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, no one uh, enjoys or necessarily copes well with change. We all struggle with change, especially if that change is significant. Uh, I think this is beautifully highlighted through the movie Up. Uh, If you don't know the movie, uh, I know it's meant to be a feel-good story, but if you stop and take a closer look, what you really see is a man deeply struggling with grief. If you don't know, it's about Carl, an elderly man. He's lost his wife. And he spends the whole movie trying to fulfill a dream they shared but never realised, which really is to distract him from how profound his grief really is. Uh, We see this as he straps balloons to his house and spends about 90 minutes uh, floating it across the whole world, endangering himself and the poor stowaway child, Russell. Struggling with change, especially the loss of someone significant, someone important to us, is a common human dilemma. Uh, Friday the 25th of August 2017 has been described as one of the saddest days in Victorian history. Over 48,000 people stood, many cried, others uh, I think were lost for words, didn't know what to say. As Hawthorne champion Luke Hodge retired and played his final game a grief I'm sure many of you share. How will we go on? What will happen to us? Is there any hope for the future? Now, that might seem a little dramatic to you, but it's exactly the question, the idea we're meant to have in our mind as we read verse 1, that Elijah is about to go. He's about to be taken to heaven in a whirlwind. This is going to be a massive blow for God's people, for Israel, a huge deal. Elijah has been such a force for good in an evil time. As Israel keeps putting up horrible king after horrible king from Ahab to Ahaziah, Elijah has been the straight-shooting, uncompromising prophet of the true God that Israel desperately needs. What will life be like without him? How will they cope? And verse 1 is deliberately put here at the start, so we pause and actually think about that question. What will happen to Israel? What hope is there for change with Elijah gone? How will God get through to them without this inspirational leader who has called out idolatry time and time again and all in the face of death threats? But on the other hand, Elijah's ministry finishing is not really a surprise. Uh, Back in 1 Kings 19, when we first met Elisha, uh, Elisha, Elijah had been promised that he was going to succeed him. Uh, Elijah took his cloak and put it on Elisha, this kind of symbolic passing of the baton, which Elisha had unreservedly accepted and now been with him ever since. Elijah is going. That's the clear and big point that this chapter is making, and everyone seems to know it. The story really flows as Elijah and Elisha, they're traveling together. Uh, For his final days on earth, Elijah seems to be going on a bit of a hike. Beginning at Gilgal, they head to Bethel, then Jericho, to the Jordan River. 
And it seems that Elijah is doing a little bit of a farewell tour, as in each town they stop at these schools or what's called the companies of prophets. They essentially seem to be mini Bible colleges that Elijah set up in his final years. And in both Bethel and Jericho, the prophets, they come out and they say to Elisha, Uh, Do you know that the Lord is about to take your master from you today? To which he replies, essentially, shut up, I know. Don't talk about it. Do you get the impression that he's kind of having trouble letting go, not coping so well with the thought of Elijah's departure? But to make matters worse, uh, Elijah seems kind of determined to get rid of him. Uh, When they leave Gilgal, Elijah says to him, verse 2, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. To which Elisha replies, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Bethel. The same thing happens in Jericho in verse 4 and then the Jordan in verse 6. And so what's going on? As Elijah approaches the end, is he a bit grumpy? Bit of a senile old man or is this maybe a little bit, he's just over it. And Elisha's kind of got that classic clingy younger sibling thing going on. Or perhaps is Elijah trying to delay the inevitable? Uh, And this could be the case because back in 1 Kings 19, we're told that Elisha's ministry is going to have a particular focus on judgment. Listen to what God said. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, and to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. So maybe as Elijah approaches the end, he's trying to delay this handover to give Israel more time to change their ways and be spared judgment. Maybe that's what he's doing. But perhaps more likely is that as they go on this farewell tour, approaching the Jordan where he'll be taken to heaven, Elijah is actually testing Elisha's resolve, testing his willingness to stick with him to then ultimately succeed him. It's almost as if he's constantly giving him the out to say, are you sure you want to come? Are you sure you want this? And just as Elisha was all in at the start, back in chapter 19, he said goodbye to his parents, he killed all his livestock, he burnt his plowing gear, he was all in then, he is all in now, he is sticking with him to the end. And we come to it, verse 7. They arrive at the Jordan River and they've got some spectators. A company of uh, 50 prophets are watching on and it's kind of building the anticipation that something big is about to happen, verse 8. Elijah took off his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided right to left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now that should sound familiar, right? Kind of like Moses who parted the Red Sea and then walked across on dry ground. And in many ways, Elijah has been a lot like Moses, a prophet for Israel who spoke God's word powerfully and God has used for the good of his people. There's a deliberate connection there that we'll pick up a bit later. But for now, they cross over together and now they're separated from their 50 spectators. The time has come. The departure is imminent. And Elijah asks, verse 9, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And what Elisha asked is both bold and honourable. He says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. 
Now, that probably seems a bit strange to us uh, as I gave time to it, maybe even a bit greedy. I feel like the only time we hear the words double portion are at dinner time. Uh, It kind of has shades of like a youth group camp, right? But the language is actually of inheritance. In Deuteronomy 21, the double portion is what the eldest son would get from the father. And so Elisha is asking to be Elijah's heir, to take over his ministry and to be equipped for it by the Spirit. Because Elisha actually gets how important, how significant Elijah has been. He understands how important the ministry has been for Israel, how challenging, how confronting, how agonizing it is to speak God's word into an apathetic and broken world. He's seen Elijah hit rock bottom in the face of death threats and no change, and yet he still says, I want that. As Pink says, that's the scholar, not the singer, He asked, not anything nature might have coveted, but that which was spiritual, seeking not his own aggrandizement, but the glory of God and the good of God's people. Therefore, he wished to be equipped for his mission. He asked for a double portion of the spirit of prophecy, of wisdom, of grace, of faith and strength, that he might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Elijah gets it, and he says in verse 10, This is a hard thing. I think he's saying that what Elisha wants is hard. To carry on the ministry is going to be costly. It's going to be rejected because faithfulness to God is hard. I don't think he's saying that it's hard to give it because Elijah knows ultimately only God himself can do this. That's why he says in verse 10, if you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. He's saying God will decide. And we don't have to wait long to find out, verse 11. As they walk along talking together, suddenly a chariot of of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now, if you're realizing uh, in this moment that Elijah is not taken to heaven in a flaming chariot, that's good because there's a lot of confusion that that's what happened, but he didn't. It was a whirlwind. That's what the Bible tells us. But the point here is that he's gone. Just one of the two people in the whole Bible that have the privilege of being spared death. And I think at this moment we want to pause, right, and we want to ask, why the chariot? Why are the horses on fire? Why a whirlwind? Are they angels? Why didn't Elijah have to die when Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, they all had to? And while these might be legitimate questions to think about, The focus is clearly on something bigger as the story moves on. What will Elijah's absence mean for Israel? How will they cope? And we see what a big deal it is there in verse 12. In Elisha's response, he cries out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more, and he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Now, it may seem that Elisha is just narrating what he sees. But when he says the chariots and horsemen of Israel, he's actually describing Elijah. The prophets who bring God's word to the people are the nation's spiritual defense. The prophet speaking God's word is their greatest and most important 
army. We know this because Elisha, when he dies in 2 Kings 13, he's described exactly the same way. And he's going. Israel is losing their chief prophet who has continually and boldly spoken the truth of God's word for the good of God's people. And now he's gone. And Elisha laments this reality as he tears his garments, which leads us to the critical question of this whole passage. Elijah is gone. And what will this mean? Or what Elisha asks in verse 14. Now he's at the Jordan by himself. He took his cloak that had fallen from Elijah. He struck the water and he said, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he struck the water, it divided right to the left and he crossed over. Where now is the Lord? Where is the God of Elijah? Well, the answer couldn't be clearer, right? He's with Elisha. Now, this is confirmed with the 50 men who have kind of creepily just been waiting there this whole time, just awkwardly waiting and hoping. They see Elisha come back and they say, verse 15, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and they bowed to the ground before him. Elijah is gone, but God is not silenced. God will keep speaking and working and revealing as Elisha takes up the ministry. That's actually the whole point of the geography of this passage. Did you notice that they take this trip together, Elijah and Elisha, now he deliberately returns to all the same places, deliberately to show that he has taken up the role of prophet. He is the one that will now speak God's word, especially we're going to see in those famous events at Jericho and Bethel which we're going to look at shortly. God has raised up a new prophet to keep speaking his word just as he's done before. Because when Elisha crosses the Jordan on dry ground to now lead God's people, it's actually not just meant to remind us of Moses, but also of Joshua. Because when Joshua received uh, the new role as leader from Moses, he too crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And so the point is clear. Whether Moses to Joshua or now Elijah to Elisha, God keeps speaking. He is never limited by or restricted by people or circumstances or culture. And I actually think this is probably helpful for us to pause and reflect on because it's so easy for us to become discouraged or to despair as culture moves further and further away from God and what God says. And the temptation will be to just think it would have been so much better, so much easier if it was just 20 years ago. And you'll meet people in church, usually older, who love to talk about the good old days and how what we really need is Billy Graham or John Stott. Then we'd really see God do some work around here. But God does not grow tired or weary. He isn't shocked or diminished based on culture or ideas. Do you honestly think that Jesus is in heaven now saying to his father, did you see that change or suppression bill they've just brought in in Victoria? How are we ever going to reach them now? Do you think God's trembling in the corner because religious education is removed from schools or Jesus is rejected or mocked in our society? Of course not. He is not limited by anything, certainly not an era, a location or a culture 
nor is he ever short on resources. Uh, the whole tension is this, in this passage is Elijah's going and what will it mean for God's people? And then the answer is bluntly given in two verses. God's going to keep speaking. He's going to keep revealing, keep saving, keep warning. And I think actually maybe even that is good for us to grasp, even hard for us to grasp, because God does amazingly use particular people at particular times that can really leave their mark on God's people. Uh, we actually see this in the passage in the hilarious events of verses 16 to 18. The 50 prophets who have just been waiting around, they see Elisha come back out and they're like, let's go find Elisha. Maybe they think God dropped him out of the whirlwind by accident. And although Elisha says, don't go, they insist to the point where he's embarrassed. They then send out a three-day search party. They come back to find Elisha in Jericho, to which he says, the biblical, equivalent of, the biblical equivalent of, I told you so, when he's just like, why'd you do it? We can be really marked by God's people. God does amazingly use servants of the gospel to bless his people. Many of you, I'm sure, know and have enjoyed and thanked God for this, but God is never limited to them. Now, I know this sounds controversial, but God does not need Neil Chambers. He doesn't need Andy May. He doesn't need Chris Shaw. He certainly doesn't need me. God speaks. He's never short on resources or power. He is the living God who has spoken, who does speak, and who will speak. And that is not just what Israel needed to hear living in exile. It's what we need to hear too. Because as Elijah ascends into heaven in the whirlwind, he actually strangely appears again in the final verse of the Old Testament. In Malachi 4.5, God promises, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. God's going to come, but first will be Elijah. And that promise just kind of sits there, hangs there for 400 years until we read in Mark chapter 1 that a guy named John the Baptist shows up wearing a uh, clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist just how Elijah was described last week in 2 Kings 1. After, uh, and John comes and he says, after him will come one more powerful than him, one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. And so as John is the fulfilment of Elijah's promised return, which Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 11, and you've got the references in your handout, Elijah then leads us to John, who then leads us to Jesus, and the message is exactly the same. God will speak. God does speak. We especially see, uh, we especially see this in Mark chapter 9. Uh, Jesus is with some of the disciples. He's gone up a mountain and we're told he's transfigured. He's changed before them. And standing with Jesus on this mountain is Moses and Elijah just having a chat. And in this great scene, God himself speaks in verse 7, and says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. As we see Elijah pass the baton to Elisha, as Elijah points us to John, who points us to Jesus, the message is the same. God continues to speak. He will not be silenced, for he cannot be silenced, and we must listen to Jesus. 
Now, I imagine for many of you, this is not groundbreaking or revolutionary. But I want to suggest to you that it's one thing to kind of know this or accept it, but it's another thing entirely to actually grasp it. I think it's easy for us to give lip service to the reality that God speaks to us in his word. But actually, do we take that seriously by giving it time and energy and focus to listen to him every day? Do you actually long to listen to your God speak to you? Is it your goal, your desire, not simply to know what God has said, but to have it shape your identity, your priorities and your worldview as you hear the true and living God speak life-giving truth to you? How often have you sat in a growth group and simply talked about how hard it is to give time to God's word rather than how necessary and wonderful it is? Because the conviction that God will not be silenced, that God speaks, is not just a kind of throwaway theological line, but a life-changing reality. We see that as the story ends in 2 Kings 2. Uh, Elisha continues to retrace the journey uh, that he and Elijah had taken. From the Jordan, he's now gone to Jericho, and the people of Jericho come to greet him because they've got a real problem in verse 19. The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, the town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. As you can see on the screen, the the translation that the land is unproductive is a little vague. More literally, the water is causing miscarriages. It's not bad water, it's lethal water. And although that might sound a little strange to us, it's not random, but takes us back to what has happened in Jericho already. When Joshua captured Jericho in Joshua 6, he said this, Curse before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. Then in 1 Kings 16, there's a new and fairly dodgy king named Ahab, who I hope is familiar to you, who orders that Jericho gets rebuilt by a guy named Hiel, who then loses his two sons for doing it, as the passage says, in accordance with what Joshua had said. So as Elisha arrives in Jericho, which is cursed and plagued by death, what does he do? Well, in verse 20, he calls for a new bowl and some salt, and then he throws it in the water, verse 21, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. Uh, Now, again, we might be wanting to get caught up on the details. Why a new bowl? Why salt? How much salt? How did Elisha know that it would fix it? And particularly as a cafe-dwelling city, our question is probably, was it Himalayan or volcanic salt? Was it pink or white, rock or flakes or table? But these are distractions and it would be to miss the point. The focus is not on the salt but on the word of God through Elisha. Verse 22, the water has remained pure to this day according to the word Elisha had spoken. As God continues to speak, he brings grace. Or I think beautifully summarised by Bible commentator Ralph Davis, Curseville has become Graceborough. 
And it's remarkable to think, isn't it, that Elisha, as he begins his solo ministry, and even though he's been promised to bring judgment, the first thing he does is bring grace to those who are suffering curse. But as people who know Jesus and people who live this side of the cross, this is actually not surprising for us at all. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to seek and save the lost, to give life to the dead. The world of Jericho is our world, the world Jesus came to, a world that rejects God and is suffering for it a world of curse and suffering and death, a world without answers. Jesus comes to that world, our world, and he promises, Luke 4, that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, gentle to the weary, kind to the needy, generous to the undeserving. That's who our God is, and we know that in the gospel. Uh, Dane Ortland's written this wonderful little book called Gentle and Lowly. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, Christ does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. So I hope you can see that it is to our great loss that we then neglect this word. We must fight. We must resist. We must confront every temptation we have to be bored or underwhelmed or unwilling to listen to Jesus. And we need to see that actually refusing to listen to Jesus is not just rejecting nourishment for our souls, but something God himself takes very seriously. And we see that in the final scene of 2 Kings 2 of Elisha and the boys. Let me read it for you again. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them and called down a curse in the name of the Lord. Then two of the bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Now, before we get into the the details, I just want to know, what do you do with this? Uh, If by some great accident you were reading two kings in your daily Bible reading and you came to this passage, what would you do? Just kind of pass it off as a funny joke, a bit of a funny story to make a meme out of or laugh. Maybe it's just a little bit weird. Now, I I asked my growth group this exact question. Uh, Some of them said that they would just move on quickly because it's weird and they don't get it. Uh, Others were shocked but ultimately said they would just keep reading. Uh, And others had even read the chapter but not actually remembered the event at all. What would you do? Uh, When reading uh, for this sermon, one of the commentators, this is what he did, the episode at Bethel is in every respect a puerile tale and there is no serious point to this incident. What would you do with this passage? 
How seriously do you take God's word to not just kind of occasionally read it, but actually a priority and effort to listen and to understand and to apply it? So let's look at the details of this surprising, even shocking story. Because on the surface, uh, I'll concede, it looks like a somewhat familiar scene, right? There's a group of teens hanging out, probably outside a shopping centre or a fish and chip shop, and they just mock a sensitive dude who overreacts. But let's notice a few things in the story. Firstly, don't let the phrase some boys, uh, or even small boys in the ESV, throw you. These are teenagers. And notice there's at least 42 of them. This is a mob. And then they're not just kind of hanging out at Uni Hill after school. In verse 23, they come out of town to meet Elisha as he's traveling. This is targeted, just like their insult. Uh, They tell him to get out or more literally to go on up. Now, it could be that they're just telling him to get out of town, but it could be that they're actually telling him to go up and participate in the idol worship that had taken over Bethel for the last 80 years, and we can read about it in 1 Kings 12. So it could be they're just telling him to get out of town or they're telling him to get out uh, to conform to their idol worship, especially because they don't think he's a real prophet. Now, by calling him baldy, they're not just kind of teasing him or being insensitive. This, too, is actually targeted, especially because almost everyone seems to think that as Elisha travelled, he would have had his head covered. You may recall last week, as Chris helpfully pointed out, that Elijah, well, he's known as Mr. Harry. Uh, and this mob of teenagers, they deliberately come out to meet Elisha to say, there's no place for you here in Bethel because you're no Harry Elijah anyway. You are not a real prophet that speaks the word of God, so get out. Go on up. They deliberately reject his authority to speak God's word, which makes sense of why the bears come out as Elisha curses them in the name of the Lord. These are covenant bears. Listen to what God had promised Israel in Leviticus 26. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, verse 22, I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. So as God says he will not be silenced, as Elijah hands over to Elisha, these two stories as Elisha makes his return through Jericho and Bethel, work together to show us that as God speaks, there will either be grace or judgment, deliverance or disaster. There is no forgiveness, no life with God, no grace for our need outside of God's word. God continues to speak, but to reject that word is death. And so for many of us who are so familiar with the idea of listening to God, so comfortable to have the Bible open, to have talks or to read it, we must recover the awe and the privilege and, yes, even the holy fright that comes with listening to the true and living and holy God speak. Because when he speaks, it is no small thing. Now, again, I imagine for lots of you, this is not new or surprising But the clear question has to be, how are we responding 
Are you constantly finding issue with the message or the messenger, focusing only on why you don't have to listen, don't have to change or don't have to respond? Has a daily commitment to listen to Jesus been replaced with daily excuses for why you can't? Have you become convinced that neglecting God's word isn't a big deal? Just the necessary sacrifice for your busy schedule? Or have you been persuaded that nothing good would come from it anyway? That it's all a bit boring, confusing and complex? But here again, that our goal is not to just know some words on a page, but hear our God speak. Uh, Eugene Peterson captures it beautifully. He says, The Holy Scriptures give witness to a living voice, sounding variously as Father, Son and Spirit, addressing us personally and involving us personally as participants. This text is not words to be studied in the quiet preserves of a library, but a voice to be believed and loved and adored in workplace and playground, on streets and in the kitchen. Receptivity is required. What are you doing with God's word? And now this is not to say that you'll never struggle with a routine or discipline or never be confused or perplexed by what you read. We all will and we all do. But as we grasp the reality that our God speaks, he has spoken, he will speak through his word, we must never be content to stay there. We won't be satisfied with our inconsistent habits or our forgetfulness or our lack of understanding. We'll pray, we'll plan, we'll prioritise because we know that our God has said, these are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. And I think this passage wonderfully shows us that as we work to hear our God speak, the voice of our good shepherd. As we pray, we grasp it and apply it and have Jesus change all of who we are. We must then learn from Elisha to not just be willing but eager to take this life-giving good news to others, even in the face of apathy or opposition and, yes, even at great personal cost. Our God will not be silenced. He speaks and he speaks words of grace, words of life, of love, of meaning and hope, of rescue to a broken and needy world, our world. So let's be those that long to listen, to grasp what our God is saying, but then to be grasped by it, that we will then speak it to a wanting world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to us and in Jesus you have spoken life-giving truth that we need. Please teach us tonight to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your word and I meditate on it all day long. Confront us now, we pray, of our bad habits and attitudes. Make it our joy to listen to you and please so change us by that word as we listen that we'd not just have zeal but courage to speak it for the good of those around us, for our own good, the salvation of many, and for the glory of your Son. For we ask these things in his name.
Amen.